Candace Hujikane is an author and professor of English at the University of Hawaii at Noa, teaching Aloha Aina and the protection of Hawaii. Having grown up on the slopes of Maui's Haleakala, Candace has stood for the lands, waters, and political sovereignty of Hawaii for over 20 years. Her newest book, Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, contends that indigenous ancestral knowledge provides a foundation for movements against climate change, one based on indigenous economies of abundance, as opposed to capitalist economies of scarcity. Candice Wujikani, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you so much for having me here. And we've so enjoyed Mapping Abundance, and we're looking forward to your next book, Elemental Cartographies. But Sue, I believe you're going to read from Mapping Abundance. The struggle for a planetary future calls for a profound epistemological shift. Indigenous ancestral knowledges are now providing a foundation for our work against climate change. One based on what I refer to as indigenous economies of abundance, as opposed to capitalist economies of scarcity. Rather than seeing climate change as apocalyptic, we can see that climate change is bringing about the demise of capital, making way for indigenous life ways that center familial relationships with the earth and elemental forms. Kanaka Maoli are restoring the worlds where their attunement to climatic change and their capacity for kilo adaptation, regeneration, and transformation will enable them to survive what capital cannot. In this way, mapping abundance is a refusal to succumb to capital's logic that we have passed an apocalyptic threshold of no return. Kanakamaoli and critical settler cartographies in Hawaii provide visual and textual illustrations of flourishing indigenous economies of abundance. Mapping abundance is a profoundly decolonial act David Lloyd has argued that it is precisely the fear of abundance that is inscribed in neoliberal capital. Abundance is both the objective and the limit of capital. The crisis for capital is that abundance raises the possibility of a just redistribution of resources. Capital depends on growth through the manufacturing of hunger. Thus, capitalist modes of production manufacture the perception of scarcity to produce markets. To extend Loy's analysis, I argue that while capitalist economies proffer empty promises of imaginary plenitude, ancestral abundance feeds for generations. Writing from a Potawatomi perspective, environmental biologist and poet Robin Wall Kimmerer contends that recognizing true abundance erodes the foundations of capitalist economies. Quote, in a consumer society, Contentment is a radical proposition. Recognizing abundance rather than scarcity undermines an economy that thrives by creating unmet needs. A Kanaka Maoli economy of abundance is one of Ma'u, a fullness that comes from sharing, trading, gift giving, conserving, and adapting. Economies of abundance create the conditions for people to see beyond the competition for scarce resources to our own regenerative capacity to cultivate abundance. To map abundance is not a luxury, but in an urgent insistence on life. Envisioning and practicing abundance is a necessity in the face of the deadly consequences of occupation, 
settler colonial genocidal tactics and corporate induced climate change. Restoration projects show us that restorative events have outwardly cascading effects on ecological systems that are contingent on one another. And bottom-up cascades are as important in this era of global climate change as top-down cascades. If small incremental adverse changes like a one degree Celsius increase in global temperatures have exponentially harmful effects, other incremental changes to repair environmental damage too have exponential restorative effects that ripple out across ecosystems around the world. Mapping abundance offers us a way to rethink the scalar privileging of global corporate and state solutions over localized restoration movements. As Anna Lewenhauptzing illustrates in her study of Matsutake mushrooms, the difference between scalable and non-scalable projects is not ethical conduct, but the fact that non-scalable projects are more diverse. I love this moving towards abundance because it's a counterpoint to the negativity that we so often hear in the environmental circles. I'm wondering when you started moving to abundance, you know, what uh, started your environmental awakening? So I've been a part of the Hawaiian movement for political independence for over 20 years. And uh, the question was always, how does climate change fit into movements for sovereignty? And I could see how, like, for my students, um, talking about climate change was something really depressing. And when I really looked at what Kanaka Maoli are doing, um, and that's another word for uh, Hawaiians, the uh, original word for Hawaiians, when I saw what they were doing in Hawaii, I saw that they don't worry about trying to take down capitalism. They are living a decolonial future in the present. So they simply act in, you know, if they're at a restoration project, they're acting as if they were independent already. And that is a focus, uh, a way of focusing indigenous economies around food production rather than around the state. And when Kanakamali talk about statist and non-statist forms of nationhood, um, they're talking about a land-based governance that that centers land and the regeneration of abundance. Uh, so I, I saw those things. And um, I also feel that as, you know, I'm a fourth generation Japanese settler in Hawaii. My job is not to bring about despair, colonial despair, or to focus only on the ways that the settler state assaults Kanaka Maoli, but my job is actually to to participate in the kind of uh, the decolonial joy of growing a new conception of governance, of, of participating in rebuilding what, what Noe Gujir Ka'opua calls rebuilding the structures that feed us in order to make possible that decolonial future. Yeah, I feel like so much of what um, people tend to focus on on critiquing the settler state, which is what we kind of learn in graduate school. We learn how to be very good at critiquing um, structures of exploitation, but we're not as adept as talking about, in talking about abundance and talking about how to regenerate abundance, how to talk about 
sometimes the more spiritual and emotional kinds of ways of thinking about decolonial joy, which is what keeps us in a struggle, what, what keeps us coming back again and again to testify in often toxic state agencies um, in front of them, uh, the Land Use Commission or the Board of Land and Natural Resources or the state legislature. It's very toxic to testify. But when I testify, I'm not testifying for the decision makers. I'm testifying in what I see as a classroom that will be televised, live streamed, stored on YouTube for people to understand what particular places mean to the people who live there. What were the ancestral understandings of those places? I don't know if I know completely the Hawaiian worldview, but as I understand from other uh, indigenous societies, was it kind of difficult to assert ownership because the philosophy is one of not owning the land that the land owns you? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great point. What we're learning is land stewardship. So it's not about ownership. It's about how to best be stewards of the land. And a very important concept in Hawaii is aloha aina. And aloha aina is both a noun and a verb. Uh, as a noun, it means um, a patriot or one who has a great love for the lahu or the collective of Hawaiian peoples or the collective of peoples in Hawaii. And it also means uh, it's a verb that's a great love for the land. So caring for that land is what is the central principle really of conceptions of governance, conceptions of um, how to reproduce abundance and food, how to grow pilina or relationships between people. And I really gravitated towards more Hawaiian conceptions of the world when I saw that testifying in front of state agencies, you don't want to get locked in kind of a hermetically sealed idea of what land means in a Western sense. Uh, I had to learn how to speak Olelo Hawaii. So I've taken Olelo Hawaii Hawaiian language for eight years. I'm not very good, <laughs> but I do my best and I can translate. And what I do is I go through the old newspapers and I go through uh, the Mo'olelo and the chants. I take classes actually from Hula uh, Master, uh, and she teaches us lessons in land stewardship that she and her mother, Puolani Kanakaole Kanahele, have learned through examining mele and song, oli, chants, that explain uh, how kupuna in the past approached climate change events. So we kind of Go through, we sift through these documentations and I look through land, uh, land commission awards to understand how land was mapped. And it's just, it's kind of incredible when you think about Hawaiian language. Um, for example, when you, when you bury the bones or the remains of ancestors, um, it's not to bury, but the verb is to kanu, which means to plant. And so it's incredibly beautiful thinking about that kind of cyclical understanding of the world where the, the kanaka or the people are aina, they are the land, and the land is 
Kanaka, that there is that kind of reciprocity. And so for myself as a settler, I've worked with a lot of the activists and the West Racer projects in Hawaii, and I've come to the understanding of myself as a settler, aloha aina, meaning that I still recognize the kinds of privileges that I'm accorded in this settler colonial system, but that I stand with Kanaka for political independence and I stand for lands and waters in Hawaii. So I've been arrested and, you know, I stand on the front line. So I, I give testimony on the one hand, but then I also stand on the front lines and get arrested on the other because I'm actually in the perfect position to get arrested. You know, I have a very secure job. I have a home. My, my partner is supportive. <laughs> um, it, it, and the ways that things are set up in Hawaii are such that arrests are planned in the sense that there is a Hawaii community bail fund that helps to bail people out. And attorneys here are amazingly generous and they give their time to represent activists pro bono. That's so admirable that you put your freedom on the line because we have to say what we, we stand for. And I hope that it's been as, as pleasant as an experience as it can be that you're still writing when you're in- incarcerated. I don't know how long <laughs> you did last. <laughs> oh, yeah. You, you sit in a jail cell for about four hours and then you're released on bail. And normally what happens is the state recognizes it doesn't really have a leg to stand on. So our cases often get dismissed. So whatever money was paid out for our bail gets returned back to the Hawaii Community Bail Fund. And the the really, I think, important thing for me was to understand what it's like to sit in a jail cell and to have that experience. We were actually chanting in our jail cells, that what is above shall be brought down and what is below shall rise up. And it was very empowering, um, that kind of sense of solidarity with the other women I was arrested with. And so these are actually important moments where you grow relationships with others in struggle. We take that with us to different struggles. So the tip of the spear was Mauna Wakea, the fight to protect the sacred mountain from the building of the 30-meter telescope. And that's been an ongoing struggle for many years, but that was the tip of the spear that enabled other uprisings against wind turbines in Kahuku, sited too close to homes and schools and in other places uh, where people are standing for um, lands that are being seized and um, developed and there are these ancestral remains that are being dug up. Um, people are getting arrested, uh, standing on the front lines to prevent those um, construction and excavation projects from going forward. But it is very fulfilling in that sense, like to have that sense. Actually, what one of the activists said on Mauna Kea is, whom I stand with and whom I stand for is more important to me than whom I stand against. Candace, a lot what you were speaking about, evidently throughout most of your book, it's this conflict, obviously, between the states and the Kanaka Maoli people, the sovereignty movement on the Hawaiian Islands. The question comes in, 
what can we make from the future? The, the state perception of land is almost diametrically opposed to what you were speaking about, a, a sustainable philosophy of, of stewardship. So how long can these two align with each other or work with each other? And what do you see in the future for cooperation amongst these two? Is that possible? Are we looking at anything oh, like that? That's a really great question. It's very complicated because the state often relies on private, uh, the private sector to provide quote unquote solutions to climate change, right? And the private sector is driven by profit motive. So on the one hand, in the bigger picture of things, I do think that I, as I had read from the passage, rather than seeing climate change as apocalyptic, it's actually leading to the demise of capitalist economies of scarcity, making way for indigenous economies of abundance. So with sea level rise at some point, Waikiki will be underwater. So as much as the state, the settler state postpones meaningful change uh, and only settles for quick fixes like seawalls, then climate change is moving forward faster than people really think or imagine. So what you see at restoration projects is um, they have a strategy of assess, adapt, and activate. So that is the strategy. Um, that's what Mike Kuhn would describe it as. My teacher describes it as. Uh, and so what they do is they project forward. Okay, if sea level is rising, what do we need to do to prepare for that? They see rising sea levels not as antagonistic forces of the ocean, but really a rising of Kanaloa, who is the deity of the deep consciousness of the ocean. And the rising of Kanaloa also means the resurgence of ancestral knowledges. So I think in many ways, restoration projects are dependent upon the state for funding and for, you know, things like leases. It's kind of sad that Kanaka Maoli organizations have to lease land back from the state. But what they're doing is they negotiate with the state in that sense, but they're building a future at a fish pond or a tarot pond fields. They're building a future. They're teaching younger generations how to be self-sustaining. And I really do believe that indigenous peoples will survive what capitalist economies cannot. You know, many of us are so addicted to capital. And what's happened during this pandemic is kind of a glimpse into a world beyond capital. Um, so many closures of businesses, um, so many ways that people have kicked into mutual care. Um, and I think that that's what will sustain us, our grassroots movements for mutual care. So cooperation with the state, um, I think that, okay, so I always think about these strategies as twofold. Um, one, we work with the state and against the state within the, the terms that the state sets. And two, we try to make possible a future beyond it. So um, in terms of like working with the state, I'm actually on a committee. You know, I was arrested for standing for um, Kahuku communities against wind turbines that were cited too close to homes and schools. And so one of the activists in Waianae asked me to be a part of the Hawaii State Energy Office's uh, civic engagement task force. So I sit on these task force uh, task forces. I don't represent the communities, but I'm a liaison. 
I can be there. I can be eyes and ears. I can take notes because, you know, this activist is busy doing more important things, building a future. But as a settler, you know, I am very well versed in the language of the state. And I can kind of identify over the years the kinds of tactics state use to construct certain um, relationships as constituting community consultation when it's not really community consultation. In any case, that's how I see there's a cooperation. And the Hawaii State Energy Office has actually been really important in trying to establish a 1.25-mile setback for wind farms from residences. And so I see that, you know, there are good people in state offices who are trying to do the right thing, and all I can do is support them. But I can't depend on state policies. I think I, I, I believe that the restoration projects are seeing the bigger picture. But, you know, we always have to work short term, long term. Um, and I think the cooperation short term, that's important. You know, when we see something working, when we see the indigenous resilience, as you say, indigenous societies can cope, can weather the storms because they're designed that way. At the same time, I don't want to say what, what can we learn from them to scale up, but for all those of us who live in cities, how can we uh-huh. take that? design and intelligence that works in harmony with nature. So one of the important techniques that Kanaka Maoli engage in is kilo, which is the art of and intergenerational observation of natural phenomena. So you have to be out there every day kiloing the same thing um, in order to establish a baseline of observation and then to be able to track anomalies. So I feel like that art of kilo has been really important in places like fish ponds, where they see that uh, fish are dying off because the waters in the fish pond are too warm. And especially with changing El Nino patterns, we've been hit really hard with uh, heat waves that uh, have a really negative effect on on fish pond operators or the fish. So fish kills of 10,000 fish is really devastating. Uh, And so what the caretakers, what they figured out is that they need to reestablish stream flow into the fish pond. The streams were being clogged by mangroves. So in Hawaii, mangroves are invasive. They're more seen as invasive than um, in other parts of the world where they're seen as uh, ways of mitigating flood or um, erosion. In Hawaii, they're, they're invasive and they encroach and they clog the stream flows. So what they did was they cleared out the stream. And once the cold water flows were reestablished in the fish ponds, the fish thrived because the stream waters would oxygenate the water um, and would cool off the temperatures. In the larger system, it's a relationship between kanes, who's the deity of under uh, water that flows underground and emerges as springs in the ocean or streams that flow underground and Kanaloa, you know, the deep consciousness of the ocean. So when what we learned, the larger lesson here is that if you maintain stream flow, you create a cold water perimeter around the island so that when hurricanes come barreling over the Pacific, they veer north or they veer south. And that's what protects us is the uninterrupted flow of water to the ocean. This is something that the Kanaka Ole Foundation observed. And I think that it's understanding those relationships between elements that are really important. When we think about things like sea level rise, yeah, and I mentioned earlier that seawalls, as you were saying, they actually, uh, well, they actually exacerbate 
what they call down updrift and downdrift sand starvation. So when you build a seawall, you actually accelerate erosion. And how do you work against that? And I think Kanakamali in their building of fish pond walls, the walls are made of stones and so they are porous. So they help to protect shorelines at, without um, creating an impermeable barrier. Uh, and so the idea of the porosity of walls uh, ha has actually been taken up in other places like in Japan where they use the tetrapods. Um, you can see the porosity of the tetrapods not as creating a wall, but as at least the kind of barrier. I'm not sure that there's a, a solution to sea level rise unless you know, corporations change their policies. So Kanakamali have two ideas about this. And one is that inundation is going to happen. Cities, in some sense, have always been ephemeral. You know, I think Atlantis is kind of kind of a, a re-emerging kind of concept now in this era of sea level rise. So there's an incredible artist named Kaili Chan who depicts Waikiki as an inundation zone. And with the inundation, though, is the return of the native fish. So the buildings will become reefs, artificial reefs, for the return of Kanaloa and all the, the animals, the, the, sea, the animals of the sea. So you can see sea level rise is being um, devastating to the people who live along shorelines. You can also see it as a restoration of original uh, shorelines. So Waikiki, uh, a long time ago, Waikiki was all underwater um, and the waters went pretty much up to the base of the mountains. Over time, the waters receded. With sea level rise, we see the waters uh, returning. So in that sense, for the people who care for fish ponds, what they see is um, they continue to uh, learn from fish ponds on the shoreline. And when I asked them what they will do with sea level rise, they said, if necessary, they'll move fish cultivation inland and they'll have freshwater fish cultivation. They will adapt. But for now, they're activating by teaching people, how do we change our palate so that we can learn how to eat mullet instead of eating tuna? Tuna as the uh, kind of pelagic fish that are more highly prized, right? Uh, because they're so much like red meat. But if we learn how to eat reef fish or fish that can be cultivated in fish ponds, that's another way of adapting and activating ourselves. So activation is like a really key concept. The other thing about seawalls sea is that um, I think for Kanakamali, there's this conception of working with the elements instead of working against the elements. So how do we work with the elements how do we make the most of climate change events? How do we turn climate change events into larger events that can possibly restore abundance in unexpected ways, like in cultivating freshwater fish ponds? So I think that those are two approaches. Of course, people in the Pacific are standing at Glasgow, right? They're at COP26. The Pacific youth are there saying, it's up to you as leaders of your nations to curb um, carbon emissions, to uh, make sure that uh, you are enforcing laws towards uh, zero emissions. But we all have our 
Kuleana, which is like our areas of responsibility or purview or authority. And for people in Hawaii, um, as we stand against global corporations, there's also this understanding of how to cultivate local movements towards, like when you restore stream flows to the ocean, you also create more um, healthy corals. Corals uh, are dependent upon that kind of uh, mixture of salt water and fresh water. You provide for the health of phytoplankton, phytoplankton then go out into the ocean, right? And the whales come and they feed on the phytoplankton and they create these fecal plumes that um, the fecal plumes again sustain more phytoplankton and the movement of whales when they sound down to the depths of the ocean and then they breach. Um, that is a way of circulating the sequestration of carbon. And for Kanakamali, they always saw whales as being that link to the ancestral realm, that when whales would sound to the darkest depths, they would have access to ancestral knowledge. And when they would breach, that would be the act of sharing that knowledge with Kanaka. And now we're seeing how important whales are to the sequestration of carbon, to life cycles in the ocean, um, that placental, like when, when a whale gives birth, the placenta feeds so much in the ocean, or there's actually something called whale snot, and whale snot actually floats to the shoreline and becomes the breeding ground for baby fish. <laughs> so anyway, whales are so important, you know, that way. But uh, seawalls, there's, there's this kind of complex integration of ecological systems. Yes, it seems that almost all animals have the humblest worm. It does so much to clean. There's nothing. It's waste is a thing of beauty. I, we haven't learned that one yet. There's been solutions. We depend on fossil fuels. It's so well known, but what are we going to replace them with? And one of those are growing a massive amounts of sea kelp. But the issue is that you would have to use a large percentage of the ocean to do this. So there, there's some something sacrificed. Obviously, I don't know what that would do in terms of the marine life to take 5% of the world's oceans and make it sea kelp. There's always this kind of balance as we industrialize a circular economy and something that works in balance with the environment. Yeah, when I talk to fish pond protectors, they are interested in those alternatives, but their approach is what are the intergenerational effects of um those kinds of actions? What will the impact be on ecosystems in the ocean? And so it's hard because on the one hand, I think Kanakamaili practitioners call for intergenerational observation before things are put into practice. And a lot of times there are only short-term studies done. As long as there can be careful observation of the impacts on existing ecosystems, Rather than reports that, you know, will skew uh, results in favor of projects, um, I think that that would be really important to look into in more ecologically based forms of regeneration and resilience. Regarding this adaptive indigenous methodology of sustainability, how can this be passed on to different people of the world? In what ways currently are indigenous populations, cultures, methods of sustainability, how are they in conversation with one another in our current day to perhaps bring this knowledge, this wisdom to light and actually make some needed change? How is this kind of understanding 
uh, passed on globally. There is a, you know, the land uh, stewardship course that I took from Kikuhi. Anyone can take that now because it's on Zoom. So she has incredibly diverse um, people who sign up for her classes in land stewardship and in chant. So if you are interested, you can go to her website at kekuhi.com and you can see her land stewardship classes. One of the things that she teaches us that is so important that I think that many of us have lost sight of, like we may have had this somewhere along our genealogical line or our ancestral line and then we've lost it, is understanding that the elements are part of your genealogy. So she has us write these really beautiful chants where we articulate first, who is our beloved Aina? And the word ku'u Aina means my beloved land, not in a possessive sense, but in the sense that you call your grandmother, your beloved grandmother. So who is your beloved land? Who is your beloved water? Who is your beloved sea? And that helps to reestablish our connection to that natural world um, and to understand that they have become a part of us on a molecular level. So my, my land is Heea uh, Uli uh, and my freshwater sources are the Kaniko'o rains. And through observation, like I always wonder, why is it called Kaniko'o? Kani means the sound and Ko'o is the tapping sound of a cane. The term Kaniko'o usually refers to long life. So in chants, it's Kaniko'o, Palalauhala, Haumakayole. But Kaniko'o means to live a long life. And when I was sitting outside uh, uh, on my porch, listening to our Kaniko'o rains falling on the leaves of my kalo plant, I realized it makes a very loud tapping sound. Now, the significance of kaniko'o is that it reminds me that I live on the windward side of the island, so I have very large raindrops. So you adapt. You know that your raindrops are large. <laughs> uh, so when you plant kalo, you want to pick a kalo that has a very sturdy kind of leaf, you know? Um, so there are ways of understanding that relationship. And ku'ukai, my ocean, uh, my sea is actually Kamano, and uh, that means the mouth of the shark and it's named that because the the reefs are ringed like the teeth in a shark's mouth and that actually protects us from tsunamis that come from the northeast. Another uh, land steward uh, teacher is Kalein Uhiva and she says, we observe so that we can understand because once you know, you're not afraid. And I feel like this kind of land steward instruction helps us not to be paralyzed with fear about the future, but rather in what ways can we activate ourselves to prepare for that future or to make possible other kinds of futures. So it reaches a global scope because it's now available on Zoom. Um, and I have been really grateful that uh, I've been asked to speak in Norway and in London and in Tokyo and in Canada. Uh, I've been speaking all over and explain to people, you should take Kikuhi's class because <laughs> I'm not the instructor, but I try to share what I learned 
in a in the sense that um, I have been also tied to um, struggles for environmental justice, uh, and I've I've sat in courtroom cases, so I can see that what's happening now uh, on a global scale is that there are corporations that actually produce environmental statements in 40 countries, 40 different countries. They use the same damaging rhetoric in environmental statements in 40 countries. And if we can pinpoint the logic that they're trying to disseminate, um, for example, in Hawaii for Mauna Kea, the logic they came up with to defend the construction of an industrial complex in a conservation zone is that there are already 12 telescopes up there introduction of one more will not tip the balance from a less than significant impact to a significant impact. And now that's a ludicrous argument because it's the kind of argument that says, well, there's plastic in the ocean. It doesn't matter if we add more. Uh, same kind of logic, uh, according to what one of the Supreme Court justices who dissented on that decision called the principle of degradation. So while the Hawaii Supreme Court upheld the TMT's permits to be constructed, one of the dissenting, the only dissenting judge said, this undermines environmental law. The purpose of environmental law is twofold. One is to protect what's left and two, to repair what's damaged. And so the idea of repairing what's damaged is totally erased and voided by these environmental statements that say it's not going to tip the balance. It's already in an adverse state. So if we work in a concerted kind of effort, I hope that we can try to see how the same tactics are being used all over the world and that if we can come up with arguments against them, like this, as I've tried to do right here, that we can build on each other's struggles. And this is how Kanakamali are allied with indigenous land defenders in other places, um, that they share strategies, for example, through the protection of water. So Kanakamali activists travel to Standing Rock to stand with the Sioux water protectors there. And they've also been a part of the Idle No More movement, which originated out of Canada. So they've been a part of these movements. Um, they took direct strategies, nonviolent direct action strategies from Standing Rock, brought them back to Hawaii, and we use those strategies at Mount Camp. So there's ways in which Standing for Land, uh, we've shared strategies of nonviolent direct action, but also in terms of the importance of water, knowledge about water having its own consciousness, um, the ways that water is treated. There are those kinds of shared knowledges. In Hawaii, we know that if the megalupa, which are like the larval stage of crab development or crustacean development, if you see the megalopa, you know the heavy rains are coming. And they have the same saying in um, parts of India, where they, they see that the larval stage of the crab signals the onset of the monsoons. So I, I, I think that those kinds of connections uh, across the world, when you can uh, see shared intergenerational observation being beneficial to your own places, uh, I think that that's important. A Developing View by Jacob A. Preislow.
Review your land. Remark its features. Develop a usage to justify. To utilize the resource that flows just underfoot. So then the land might have purpose. An idle grassland, a barren mountaintop, offer me no clear value. I see but stones in empty space, a sandbox to plow and repurpose. I arrived not long ago, and so see this new world anew. New national lines dichotomize, paving sidewalks on what one once knew, as idle grasslands, barren mountaintops, names I find no purpose in remembering. For they are but words, and land is land, destined to be settled and redefined. Why meddle in this those who dull the spade and halt the churning march? What good be a stream if it powers no mill? What waste make a beach if not toiled and tilled? Relinquish your land, these desolate fields, to turn dirt to power, meld nature with steel. And thus it began, the siege now beset, through ample ignorance and stubbornness. But if we were to lend a thought and grasp the old anew, what progress is made, innate, inlaid in wisdom of precursors who, observed before and mapped the way, the solace encoded as stewardship say? What if, you ask, what then you think, that our ways could be wiser and our connection relink to idle grasslands and barren mountaintops, in a primordial pace set by power unnamed? In this, you'd review your land, its future, and ponder a knowledge that need not justify, but rectify our life source supplied in abundance. Perhaps then we would see land's true purpose. But just the very idea of incorporating the elements into your own genealogy is a kind of, it's a huge epistemological shift. And I'd like to go more into that because you're speaking about reading the marine life, reading, uh, just tell us the different ways because it's, uh, it's a magical, subterranean, uh, mysterious world. It is incredible. Uh, there is one, Mo'olelo um, or storied history that appeared in Hawaiian language newspapers that identifies 405 different cloud forms and identifying the function of each cloud form. And so um, Kalein Uhiva is the Papahulilani expert, meaning that she has studied very closely um, the movement of the celestial bodies, but, and also the cloud forms. So she explains that in Hawaii, when we see these, there are these streaky clouds called keave. So they kind of look like plumes that stretch out into the sky, like from like the fingers of a hand. And she says, when you see those plumes um, or you see the Kiave clouds, that signals that humidity is just around the corner. And I think that's very important to be able to prepare for days that are humid, to prepare for days that you know what to expect. Oh, a certain uh, cloud form signal that wind is on the way, that other forms of uh, weather phenomena are about to happen. And so, this is important in the sense that those who planted kalo were mindful about planting multiple varieties in any one plot so that if the wind comes or the floods come, different kalo plants varieties have the capacity to withstand different weather phenomena. Um, any kalo plant uh, named after kai, like pa'akai, 
salt means that it can withstand high levels of salinity. So, you know, that kind of observation is incredible. What kinds of kalo plants can grow along the shoreline? Like lihikai, you can actually plant these kalo in sand, which is amazing. And I've seen these um, kalo gardens where you're planting things in sand and planting the kalo in sand. There's also uh, ones, again, that can withstand desert temperatures that you would plant in Kau or Puna uh, or Kau. So that kind of understanding of weather patterns uh, is just amazing. Um, and there, there are 400,000 Akua or elemental deities in the Hawaiian pantheon of gods, 400,000, which is really a metaphor for saying they're too many to count. And what it means is that every ahupua'a or every land division that stretches generally from the mountains to the seas has its own winds, rains, and ocean currents and other kinds of phenomena specific to that place. And this is important to understand and place names were a way to remember that knowledge. So if the, a place was named Punalu'u, Puna means spring and lu'u means to dive. So when you, uh, in a place named Puna Lu'u, you knew that there were freshwater springs that were emerging out in the ocean. And so those who had knowledge of these places, if they were out fishing, they wouldn't have to come back in for water. They could take a gourd and dive down to the uh, underwater spring capture fresh water and bring it up to the surface. All of these things remembered in place names. That's why it's important that we reclaim those place names because a lot of them have been lost. Um, there's been a recent project where the Hawaiian Civic Club, uh, Ko'olau Poko Hawaiian Civic Club actually invested in signs that mark ahupua of Kaneohe, ahupua of Heiauli. What it did was it opened up all these mo'olelo that had been locked because people thought they were living in the larger ahupua of Kaneohe, but were able to regain the place name Heea Uli. So when they did research, they could look for mo'olelo in the newspapers about Heea Uli and the characteristics of Hei. It's just incredible that mapping in that way has unlocked a lot of the mo'olelo chants, the stories that have been hidden behind misnomers. Do you mind if I ask, would you like to share a chant? Yeah, I can do one line so that you can hear the vibration in the voice that is meant to resonate with the vibrations in the natural world. I mean, there are amazing chants that mimic the sounds of whales. Uh, okay, so um, the one that I learned from Kikuhi, I'll just do the first line. And it's a beautiful chant that describes how the seeds of the ohia tree that produce the beautiful red lehua flowers the seeds, I think, uh, float on the winds, the wings of the winds, and embed themselves into the earth. And from those seeds sprout. Really, it's a story that it's a, song, a chant that a teacher is, is 
teaching her students how we are the seeds that will go out into the world and will plant ourselves and grow new trees. Uh, and we ourselves will have our own students. So it's about knowledge floating on the wings of the wings and spreading out. And it's incredibly beautiful. And it also references the native birds that will help in the process of regeneration, you know, through their pooping out of the seeds and the, and the regrowth of the seeds. That's the chant she teaches in her land stewardship course. And I, I don't do the whole thing because some are more ceremonial. And she said that we can share that one as long as we learn it well. <laughs> so I'll just do the first line and then I think that's safe. And, but you get a sense for what we do when we're chanting is we're imaging that movement and we're projecting that image out into the world, the visualization of it into the world. And we're activating ourselves as almost a commitment to fulfilling that promise. And also we're activating the world as well to be prepared for our, what we will do in the future. So I, I love that as, a, as, again, a confirmation of our commitment to making regeneration happen. I love that, our commitment. And I love how it connects us so much. I feel like the natural world is, is one and the same. I feel it when you chant it. I don't want to say, but it's not a, a human sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. It's meant to mimic the sounds of birds. Probably I would, I would do it in a higher pitch. Um, but I feel like that's where it comes from me. That is my sound. But um, we try to mimic sometimes the sounds of birds. Uh, we mimic the sounds of whales. It, it, I think the most important thing is that we have to reestablish that sense of intimacy and connectedness with the natural world that we have lost over time. And so I want to, I want to touch on other things as I know you have uh, collaborations with artists. If you'd like to talk about that first. So one of the art forms I'm learning is making kappa. So that is uh, making cloth out of the bast. And my teacher is uh, Kumu Ibelo, and she, she does amazing works where she teaches us how to make our own uh, stamps and we make our own dyes. We make our own beaters. We make our own shark's tooth knife. <laughs> I, like I signed up for couple, I signed up for Oli and then I learned how to make couple and then I learned how to do woodwork. Uh, <laughs> it's just kind of uh, amazing. But then you learn something about everything, right? You learn about the character of the wood. You learn about which woods are hard and which ones are soft. Uh, and you kind of gain a sense of the spirit of the wood, really, um, and how to work with it. Uh, you don't want to work against it. You want to work with it. And what we learn, too, is the caring of the mala, where we grow the voke. The voke is actually, in English, it's the mulberry, uh, paper mulberry. And so we learn how to cultivate that. And we learn things through the cultivation. Like invasive species actually can provide microclimates to enhance the growth of native plants. So uh, the California grass, which is really invasive in Hawaii, it actually provided a microclimate that allowed Naikumu to plant her voke. So you learn all of these things. And the art is, is so intimately connected to the natural world. I actually have a piece of kappa that she made. And when she made this kappa, she actually um, named it Kaua'ula. So the pattern is named after a wind. 
Um, and this is the wind of the place in Lahaina where the developers are unearthing all of these bones and the people are standing in the trenches, the development trenches, trying to stop the developers from unearthing more bones. And so she named the pattern of her of her stamp, Kaua'ula, and it's just it's the most powerful wind that travels over several mountains. It travels over the contours of the mountains miles away. It travels over many bridges and mountaintops before it finally hits Lahaina and the place named after the wind, Kaua'ula. And so that was so inspiring to me that my kuma was able to make a stamp that resembled the flows of movement of air, the wind over mountaintops along the contours of the mountain. So that's where you see the art being so intimately connected to the process and that relationship that we are asked to grow when we care for the mala from the from the time we plant the mala uh, plant the volcano plants to the time when we present the finished kappa to the people of Kaua'ula so that they can wrap the unearthed bones in the kappa to be reinterred. It's part of a ceremonial process. And it's one that also reconnects us to the ancestors because as we're pounding kappa, you know, and here I am, I'm a Japanese woman pounding kappa, but you know, our kuma says that the kupuna sit with us when we're pounding the kappa and they're waiting for their peace so that they can be reinterred. And it's just that imagining that forces us to understand that living sense of Aina, the living sense of the world around us in ways that the state and the developers consistently deny when they say that the most abundant lands are actually wastelands. And they try to convince us that those lands are wastelands. Uh, I just sometimes wish I could take one of the developers to make couple with me, but of course people only see what they want to see, right? So I just feel like that connectedness to the ancestors is really important in this work that we do, that we feel like we are not alone, that they are standing behind us and that they are depending upon us to stand for them. I think that answers our, our closing question, which was, you know, as you think about the future and Hawaiian indigenous knowledge adaptation, you know, what would you like young people and visitors to Hawaii to know, preserve, and remember? Yeah, I want them to think about a decolonial future that people are currently enacting in the present. So when you go to a fish pond, you're not just seeing how Hawaiians did things in the past. You're seeing how they do things now and how they are teaching young people to do things in the future. And so that sense of the livingness of history, of course, so much of what settler colonialism tries to do is to create a threshold of colonialism and to say that after colonialism, Hawaiians are no longer authentically Hawaiian. Uh, and then what they do is they preclude any um, interviews or any consultation with living practitioners because they don't want to acknowledge that culture and practices are still alive. But you see that when you go to a fish pond or when you go to a kalo farm. It's a very beautiful way of living and seeing the world. So thank you, Candice Fujikani, for your commitment to mapping abundance, for helping us to understand our akua, aloha ina, uh, your love of the land, and that we're all part of nature. We don't own it.
we're all connected. We appreciate you sharing the Hawaiian worldview. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you so much. I just really enjoyed your questions. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Jacob A. Preisler. Digital media coordinators are Megan Hagenbarth and Jacob A. Preisler. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.